0: The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. So whatever happened
1: to COVID? The disease that raged across the globe between 2020 and 2022 has mostly disappeared from the headlines. Now few of us wear masks anymore, most of us have the vaccines and boosters and when was the last time you heard of someone who died from COVID? China,
0: it was feared, would face a big surge when it eased up on lockdowns but even with the lack of data from Beijing there doesn't seem to have been the expected catastrophe.
1: Here, NHS data suggests there were still around 100 deaths a day from COVID in January and more than 4,000 hospital admissions a week for the virus in England. So where are
0: we with COVID? Are there more and worse variants around the corner? Have most of us now got antibodies that can cope? Is COVID-19 now just another flu-like
1: seasonal irritation? Or are the isolating vulnerable in society just going to have to live with the risk? Is the pandemic as we knew it over? That's the Y Curve this week, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The
2: Y Curve.
0: So I have to say, first of all, Roger, because everyone might be wondering why you sound as though you're uh, talking through a tin can this week. Is because you're you're not you're you're in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they have no, good tin cans in Manchester. It's one of the things <laughs> that they it's produce not an excuse myself, itself. But you you are using the technology of talking
1: to us on your iPad rather than being in the studio with Indeed, me. Indeed, but so. with a beautiful microphone, so you should be able to hear me. And uh, you know, we are going to get to grips with a mm. pretty important subject because the thing with with COVID is it seems to have. I don't know, vaguely moved into the background. I mean, you just have we to just look at- It's
0: not talked about. Is
1: it? I mean, I, I, well, I, looked yeah. on, I looked on
0: Hansard before we started recording this to as see how... As you regularly his, do, I, I always have a quick read of Hansard in the morning to see how much it's being talked about in government. And the only time it's ever mentioned is if it's sort of like a backward-looking investigation at, uh, you know, PPE contracts and the like. Actually looking to, you know, a
1: forward plan, there isn't one. As though, we know, we don't need to concern ourselves anymore. And also, anymore. you know, how many people are currently, have currently got it? How many people are in hospital? How many people have died from it this week? Uh, mm. Those sort of things have disappeared entirely. Remember the time we used to every evening, there would be the numbers for the week or the day, uh, how many had died? We see those graphs. You remember all those press conferences from yeah. number 10? I mean, all that has gone, but is it still a problem?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I, but particularly long COVID. I mean, that's the, that is the that is the worrying f- number, isn't it? Uh, people who've got long COVID, we don't even know what that number is. But, I mean, anecdotally, there are, there are those people around who are saying, yeah, I had COVID a long time ago. I'm still suffering the consequences of it. Some, some of them quite badly. And it seems that's the area where there's not a great deal of research. We don't know too much we about it. We
1: don't, but also we don't know what's coming around the corner because one of the big things they always said, oh, well, you know, there'll be a variant at some point that will uh, overcome whatever we've got in the way of protecting from the the, the boosters and the vaccines that we've had. They'll give it some other Greek uh, alphabetical name and it will come and it will devastate us. That's what was always thought about. And then people said, well, no, it'll just be some kind of, you know, thing we just know it's there, like, flu or the cold. It'll just be there and we accept it. Mm. But then, of course, there are people who I know of who aren't literally staying in their houses, can't go out, feel terribly threatened by it because they are vulnerable, other health vulnerabilities. What do we do? Just sort of say, well, sorry, you just got to live with it. It doesn't work
0: yeah, for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I know someone who's completely paranoid about it. Uh, he hasn't had it yet and he walks around with a mask on with a you know proper respiratory mask and I wonder whether when he gets it, because it, it seems almost inevitable that everyone's going to get it at some point in their life. Is he going to get it worse because he's not built up the antibodies that the rest of us have built up? So, I mean, all of these are
1: questions that we can ask our guests this week because we're going to get to grips with it all. Paul Hunter. Paul is one of the main voices on all this. I mean, he's been throughout the pandemic someone who has... Monitored what's been going on, been talking about the risk been advising government too. He's professor in medicine at the University of East Anglia, and he joins us now.
0: So, Paul, I'm looking at the uh, the Office of National Statistics data for the last week of January. Uh, we had 15,000 new cases of COVID in England. That seems very small compared to, I mean, still quite a lot of people, but small compared to the numbers we were seeing, you know, a
2: year ago. Uh, no, so indeed. Is it yeah. safe to say yeah, is mean, the worst it, of it over? Is it safe to say? I, th- I think the worst of it is over. I think. The uh, the thing with COVID is that people talk about infection and talk about illness in the same breaths, and they're, and they're not the same. I mean, they were the same early on in the pandemic, where you know infection was highly likely to be associated with illness, and 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 much more likely to be associated with severe disease and 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 indeed death. Whereas now, um, many people who are infected are actually don't have symptoms and. Um, and generally, although we are still seeing people with severe disease, people going into hospital, and we're still seeing, you know, maybe about a, you know, a, a, an average of a well, a bit under hundred deaths a day, um, in people who've tested positive. Although, um, you know, not all of those will have died because of COVID. So it's still around, but it is a lot less. Um, of a problem than it was even a year ago. Is that because we are all now, or not all of us,
1: obviously, but a very substantial part of the population, the famous herd, if you like, has yes. had the boosters, has had the vaccines, and we have the antibodies that can deal with the currently available variants? Uh,
2: yes, yeah, to a large extent, that is indeed the case. And But it's it's more than that as well, it, is that uh, if you look at the ONS um, estimates of incidence and then make one or two... Um, uh, Additional adjustments for weeks that we didn't have that analysis. It's it sort of it's turning out that maybe about um, on average, every single person living in England has had at least has had on average two in, two COVID infections, not just vaccine but infections now within that some people still have not have yet to have their first infection some of them have had multiple infections but on average it's about two infections per person and most people have already been vaccinated and and the 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 big thing that protects you against severe disease is, is, we believe is, is called hybrid immunity. And hi, what hybrid immunity is, is people who've been vaccinated and they've had at least one infection. And all the evidence is that. If you fall into that category, you are very unlikely to get severe disease, need to go into hospital or die when you get your next COVID infection. And that doesn't mean to say it's not possible, but it's much less likely than uh, others. And and to a large extent, that, I think, is why we're seeing substantially less severe disease than than uh, even a year ago.
0: But it's, so those people, and there are people, obviously, who are it, it, refusing to take the vaccine for for various reasons. One of those reasons, of course, is that it's it's all Bill Gates trying to depopulate the planet and uh, other great <laughs> theories like that. But I mean, those people are they putting themselves at risk then, at greater risk, or if they've yeah. had it a couple of times, is that risk still pretty minimal? Because if you look back at the Spanish flu, for example, back in yes. 1918, I mean, put me wrong if I'm if I am wrong on this, but uh, correct me. But I mean, we didn't have a a, a cure for that. It Indeed. sort of blew it. Yeah. It blew itself out after a couple of years, didn't it? Yes, yes. More the morbidity rate was back to normal,
2: uh, pretty much. Yes, yes. And and that was not. We didn't have vaccines uh, f- uh, for flu at that time. So much of that reduction in severity was that people actually had the infection and, and recovered, or not. They died, um, and um, and then with time, uh, things got back to, to normal over a period of about three, four years. Now, um, one of the problems with the Spanish flu was that um, it, it also was associated with some longer-term uh, consequences. And there is you know, um, some suggestion that uh, a lot of people who developed Parkinson's disease later on in life might that might have been have some relationship to the fact that they had the flu earlier on in life but you know there's so it you know it these things have a habit of continuing to cause harm for some time afterwards but the acute effects uh really lasted um just three or four years
1: which kind of brings us, I suppose, onto the obvious thing that's around that people are still talking about, which is long COVID, uh, which is which is how how badly people are affected. I mean, just here is a bit of personal thing. I really don't have a sense of smell at the moment. That, may well, that good a great for deal. various reasons, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't, and I, I hope it will come back. I've never lost my sense of taste, uh, but a lot of people have much more severe uh, symptoms than, than I have. Yes. and and is is there much knowledge about how long it lasts, what it is, how it can be
2: treated? Uh, well, I think we're we're getting there, but I think one of the problems is that, again, that people talk about long COVID as though it's a single entity, and I don't think that is the case. I think long COVID is a catch-all term for a range of things that happen after people um, uh, contract COVID, and some of those uh, outcomes are very strongly physical. Some of them are Neurological, psychological, uh, but many of them probably a mixture of both. And so, um, in terms of the prognosis, those are sort of the outcome when people recover. I think it's going to depend to a large extent on what actually is going on, and and I don't think there is a single thing that is going on with long COVID. I think it's there are a range of things going on, some of which. Um, uh, probably haven't got that much relationship to each other other than the fact that they can be related back to a, an initial COVID infection. Right. So is it, was
0: it yeah. COVID that caused it or could they have had those complications anyway? and I, it's think, just,
2: um, I think COVID th- might um, have
0: weakened their immune system yeah, for example. Yeah, uh,
2: absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that um, we know from um, the, the uh, work on um, previous fo- post-viral syndromes and I think m- most physician i mean this isn't a subject that i'm uh you know, that i'm doing research on but from what i'm reading most um that a lot of the issues around long covid are not that much different to the issues around post viral syndromes that we've been talking about for years and and even within there you know some people respond well to Physical therapies. Some people don't. Some people respond well to psychological therapies. Some people don't. And, and I think we there's we've still got a long way to go to actually be able to t- tease out what be- uh, optimal treatments are for people. But generally, the longer term outcome of these for most people is that they would seem to recover um, uh, with time. But uh, it's still we're still only three years down the line and probably just a year or two down the line from when most people got their uh, COVID infections. So the, we need the, we need to wait and do more research and see what, what happens before we can actually Do we have start a sense of about-
1: scale? Do we have a sense of scale of this, of, of how, how many people do have long COVID in, in any kind of severe form? Because people were talking at one point as being a, a major societal issue that So many people were left uh, with this.
0: Well, I was I was looking at the the Journal of the American Medical Association, yes. as you know, as you do. Uh, they, <laughs> there's an article there. Actually, this comes from the University of the Bleeding Obvious. Actually, it was an article yeah. that said you, you said it, the risk of post COVID condition, as they call it, PCC, mm-hmm. is reduced if you eat better, exercise more, uh, you keep your weight down, and you smoke less. Uh, well, who'd have thought that? Yeah. But they've got. A, they say the number of people with PCC, which I'm taking as long, long COVID in the united states somewhere between 8 and 23 million that is a fairly broad spread isn't it
2: it is but it does depend on how you measure um the uh the infection uh, the uh, uh the prevalence of long covid and and people have come up with very different estimates and it, and there, there it's really difficult to Get a good handle on how much illness there is in the community of any disease, not just long COVID. And for example, you know, if you if you did a study where you asked people to uh, approach people and say, "Look, you know, have you got long COVID?" Then one of the concerns about that is that people who have long got long COVID are more likely to participate in your study, and therefore you overestimate. The um, prevalence of long COVID. In general, those studies that have um, uh, used um, controls tend to come up. I, you know, they they've got ways of actually trying to adjust for this. tend to come up with lower estimates than those studies that have um, basically followed up people and asked them uh, if you've got uh, continuing symptoms. But it is still. Uh, a substantial proportion, particularly, I think, in um, uh, in middle-aged uh, and above people. Um, you,
1: you say a substantial proportion. We're we talking like quarter of the population, oh, third of the population.
2: I don't know. I mean, it, it's difficult. There are just so many estimates of this, and I, I've not. Uh, um, I've
0: and not, I guess it depends on by degrees as well. You can, it yeah, can be mild versus yeah, fairly yeah. severe. But how how long does it go on for as well? Because I know someone who's had it uh, in quite a, I mean, she can function, but, I mean, she's definitely more lethargic than she ever was before. And Indeed. she's had it for a year, I think.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think the answer is we don't know that for certain. Some people mm. recover within months, but as you say, some people two years down the line still have the... Um, the symptoms, and, and is um, that going to be is that going to be part yeah, of the is it's, that going to be it's, part it's, of the
0: legacy that we 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 come out of this with a a disease which by and large is 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 not knocking us out in any great way, but some people it is going to hit hard and for 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 a while. Yeah, no, is, that, is that, I think that look, is the case. And
2: the the last really big pandemic of coronavirus of, of a coronavirus at least that's what we think it was or most people accept it as being and although not everybody uh, agrees with this was probably um in the last decade of the 19th century so about 1891 92 93 um and there are, there are very many similarities in the both in the symptoms in that that uh, pandemic and certainly it was observable that people af- who recovered in that pandemic even then ha- went on for and num- some of them went on for a number of years with um, post uh, illness symptoms that or post acute illness symptoms so yeah it it was expected that we are we were going to have this i think um the big issue though is exactly what proportion and mm. that i think is still not. Yep. Or more I'm research thinking,
0: needed yeah. clearly yeah look uh, we're going to take a quick break when we come back i want to uh, talk to you about china because of course china has been in lockdown for a long time they've had zero covid and now uh, it's all over the place so but not as bad as you know perhaps we were led to believe so i want to look at that when we come back it is the y curve me and roger and our special guest paul hunter from the university of east anglia well, this podcast is made possible thanks to those very nice people at Wigmore Associates, the boutique wealth management firm that looks after the assets of
1: individuals, pension funds, trusts and charities. They look after your investments, managing risk and maximising your returns. They'll help you plan for your retirement, including consolidating your pensions into one scheme, saving you money and broadening the range of investments. And when you're
0: finally gone, when you've shuttled off this uh, mortal coil, uh, they'll make sure your family or whoever you're leaving your money to uh, gets the best possible payout delivered in the most tax-efficient
1: way. And to find out more, you just go to wigmore-associates.co.uk or you call them 0207 224.
0: Wigmore-associates.co.uk 0207-224-3400 That's what I said. Yeah, I know. It's reinforcement, Roger. You you, you repeat it and then people remember it. That's the way advertising works.
1: What? Wigmore-associates.co.uk Yeah, I think that's enough. I think we've done it now. 0207-224-3400 Yeah,
0: Yeah, enough already. But I have to say, for as a long time BBC man, you are getting the hang of this advertising malarkey. Very good. Wigmore-associates. All (laughs) right. Nicely done. The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. So let's get back to Paul Hunter, Professor of Medicine at the University of East Anglia. So, Paul, I guess one thing that has happened over the last month or so is that China is uh, getting back to work. It's reopening. Uh, And, I mean, obviously they haven't been exposed to COVID in the same way that we have. And they've got a vaccine which is, you know, arguably less efficient. We were expecting that it was going to be a disaster, but it, I mean, we don't know the numbers, but it seems like it's it's not as bad as we are expecting.
2: Yeah. yeah, absolutely, and and I think the first thing to say is that that why has China why ha, it, it has been dreadful in China and um, uh, in recent uh, weeks in well recent months certainly, and th- I think the problem that China faced is that it vaccinated its population. And although yes, the Chinese vaccine probably is certainly not as good as the mRNA vaccines that we've been using. It wasn't actually a bad vaccine. You know, it it uh, um, achieved the level of protection that was set out for vaccines uh, by the WHO early on in the uh, pandemic. Um, And so, you know, a perfectly acceptable vaccine. It only looks like a, a. bad vaccine when you compare it to the really effective mRNA vaccines, such as the Pfizer and Moderna. But I think the problem that China had is that after it vaccinated its population, it still maintained its zero COVID policy. Now, we know that vaccination uh, doesn't protect forever. Even if you've had your three shots, the protection that you get from that probably only lasts against infection, probably only lasts uh, four to six months on average. Some people longer, some people shorter. Now, protection against more severe disease lasts a bit longer, but it still doesn't last forever. And looking at the data, it's probably about half of people are protected against more severe disease for about a year. After the vaccination, so what? And what China did was vaccinate everybody, then maintained its uh, zero COVID policies, and effectively for about a, you know getting on for a year after most people were vaccinated, or at least that most of the vaccination campaign started winding down, were still not being exposed to COVID. So that when actually we had um, particularly infectious variants of Omicron that were circulating and spreading in China despite their, uh, their policies. And in fact, the, the, the big wave started before the relaxation of, uh, um, of its uh, COVID suppression policies. Uh, it, but the problem then was that a lot of people had lost their protection against infection because of the time since their vaccination, and also they were starting to lose the protection against severe disease. And yet the stats don't
1: suggest, such such as we know, uh, don't suggest there has been a massive, certainly not a massive loss of life uh, across China. Uh,
2: Well... Um, the problem, I think, in China is that we don't know that. the, mm. the China modified its definition of a death from COVID in a uh, a way that I think most of us in the West would not agree with. And and I think looking at other mm. reports, newspaper news reports about the impact of COVID on um, uh, on uh, mortuaries and and hospitals are that it was a very very nasty peak of. Uh, infections with very many deaths m- far more than the you would get from looking at the official data So,
0: you, you touched on an interesting point there though that the combination it's got to be the combination between having the, uh, the, the the vaccine but then also being exposed to to the virus Indeed. as well and, th- yes. and that, that simply yes. wasn't happening there and yet i think that's 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 where the you know the medical profession perhaps got into a uh uh a bit of difficulty even in this country for those people who who were arguing against the vaccine you know were able to say oh look it's not working because we're getting sick you know we we there's this expectation wasn't there that we would take the vaccine we wouldn't get the disease whereas a lot of people still got it they didn't get it as badly as Indeed. they would before but that wasn't what was sold on the tin well so i suspicious. don't know
2: I, yeah i mean it was i don't wait gosh back in january 2021 my colleagues and i wrote a paper basically showing that herd immunity is unachievable with vaccination and was um uh, and mm. that you know that um vaccine was not going to prevent ultimately wasn't going to prevent the spread of covid but it was going to substantially reduce
0: Right uh, deaths. Well, maybe it was the messaging we were getting from the government then. In that case, uh, that was sort of giving that sort well, of idea. I,
1: I, the messaging I, I was certainly getting when when I had my boosters and things was all. You know, this is the point when everybody, lots of people, were getting it. No one expected that they wouldn't in a way, but that they weren't, as you say, having a severe illness. But but to pick up on your point about what happened in China and the duration of any protection, even against severe illness, being limited and the fact of various Greek-named variants coming around the corner, how confident can we be now that that whatever happens next winter or even this summer won't be something that what we've got in our systems doesn't cater for?
2: One of the um, good things that we've seen in in the data over the last uh, year is that although as new variants have arisen in the past – They'd, what we call escape mutations, though they escape immunity so that you get an, a new variant that is more likely to overcome immunity to infection. But the immunity, again, an in, in, the infection normally is an infection of the nose and throat, and we call that mucosal infection. And mucosal immunity, we know and we've known long before COVID, uh, doesn't last very long you know um a uh, matter of um months uh, rather than years immunity against severe disease or systemic immunity is much more durable and the big thing that we now know for certain although we you know we expected this to be the case that something called hybrid immunity where which is immunity that you get when you've been vaccinated and you've had an infection is gives inc- much much stronger protection against severe disease that lasts probably several years.
1: Severe disease, including any and, variants
2: that might it, come down the line. I mean, we know what it does against what we've got, absolutely. And and new variants, by and large, the the parts of the virus that that um the immunity to severe disease attack hasn't changed or hasn't changed much, but the so the virus has evolved to escape. Mucosal immunity, sort of nose and throat infections, but hasn't evolved so far to escape immunity against severe disease. or at least, you know, the, the, the way I said that sounded like it was a definite you know one or the other. Everything is, is not yes, no, it's a sort of a, uh, a spectrum of, of activity. But the by and large, every variant that we've seen hasn't really led to uh, an increase in more severe disease per infection this was sort of expected though wasn't
0: Um, it because i mean if you're if you're if you're a virus and you're spreading amongst a population and you want to survive you don't want the your hosts to die around you do you
2: yeah no absolutely and you know this was taught 40 years ago when i was a Mm. student you know that um that um the virus wants to spread but it doesn't want to kill you um, by, if, you know, viruses don't think, you know, don't don't uh, get the mistaken view that I think that viruses are conscious. Well, and,
1: well, there's, uh, some, there's some doubt as to whether what they yeah, are, whether they're well, a life
2: form or they're not a life. Yeah, no, no. But it's the evolutionary pressure, you know, and, um, and vi- most most virologists would argue that viruses don't aren't alive as such you know they are uh, um, not like bacteria which we think of as definitely think of as being alive so
0: a friend of mine on this this point about you know that the the ideal combination is that, that you are exposed to the virus having had the vaccine so there's a friend of mine who's had the vaccine and several yes. times possibly four I've had it four times now so there's a question do I, you know do we need to keep yeah. on taking it is one question but also this friend of mine is paranoid i i think he's probably doing himself more harm from the worry about it all he he, he wears one of the you know those proper respiratory masks he doesn't like sitting yeah. in cafes. He's never yeah. had COVID, so is he doing the right thing, or is he actually making himself more susceptible to to getting quite badly ill if he if he does get yeah,
2: it? Yeah, I mean, this is the the point is that this is a virus that's never going away. You know, I've been saying since summer twenty twenty that our grandchildren's grandchildren will be catching SARS CoV two the virus that causes COVID, and um, and that is. What was believed by the majority of uh, infectious disease uh, specialists working on on um, these sorts of viruses, and I know that for a fact because that's uh, Nature magazine did a survey in December 2020, and 90 of the uh, the response the uh, it did a survey of what it considered to be the top scientists and medics in the world working on this. And, uh, and that's what 90% of them felt. And so, you know, we've heard a lot about zero COVID, but I don't think many specialists in infectious disease, respiratory infections ever thought really since, you know, since April, 2020, that zero COVID was, was realistic. And, and at some point, you know, either you decide you're going to live in in isolation for the rest of your life or you've got to actually integrate yourself back into society. But there are people and, who, are, who yeah. are vulnerable, people who have underlying yes. medical conditions and we, we
1: encountered them. I remember we reported on them quite a lot at the time who, who isolated, self-isolated, um, those in very difficult position, but effectively, yeah. I know some of them are saying, "Hang on, you guys are fine now. We're not. Is that is that Indeed. inevitable? Is that going forward? Can we not adjust that? Is that just the way it, it yeah. is?" Yeah,
0: I, I mean, my, my friend, I should just be saying to him, "Take the mask off. You've got to live with it because it's around for forever. Unless you're going to keep that mask on till the day you die, uh, you've, you've, you've you just get it." And and you,
2: yeah, I mean, it, it's it is difficult because. You're quite right. It depends to a certain extent on how vulnerable people are. Mm. If you're in a vulnerable group that if you catch COVID and you've not had it so far, um, you will likely suffer more severe disease, then I think that's a different issue compared to most of the rest of us. If you are vulnerable, then um, I think I would still certainly, I think you'll be offered um, further doses of vaccine. We don't know yet whether... How widely booster vaccines will be offered in the autumn. And we basically need to see what happens during uh, this winter um, before that decision is finally made. But we do know that there will be around definitely in the autumn and may well also be one in the spring uh, as well for particularly vulnerable people. The other thing is if I was, you know, um, if I was quite a bit older, um, I would. you know, I'm 66 now. So if I was, if I was certainly in my 80s, or if I had an underlying uh, disease, I would continue to wear a face covering in public, because um, face coverings do reduce the risk of transmission. They don't eliminate it. Um, uh, they, by and large, I think people, the the best evidence is they reduce transmission by about 20 percent give or take. So, um, you know, they don't provide 100% protection, but they provide about 20% protection. And that doesn't differ that much between surgical masks and these N95 respirator masks. The other thing that masks do is reduce the dose of the virus that you're exposed to if you catch it. So, and we do know that the, one of the drivers of how sick you get after and in many infections is actually the dose that you're exposed to. So if you're exposed to mm. A lot of virus, you're more likely to get more sick than if you're exposed to very small amounts of virus. Well, we saw that at the very beginning, yeah.
0: didn't we? Because people people were coming back from Italy. They were they were trapped on a coach trying to escape from Italian resort yes, for hours yes. and hours and hours. It turned out yeah. almost every one of well, them had COVID, and they got yeah, it quite badly.
2: And that that poor um, ophthalmologist in in China who died, you know, um, very early on in the outbreak, despite being harassed by the police because he was trying to raise awareness about this. Um, he was an ophthalmologist, and the thing about ophthalmology. Is they get right in your face when they're looking in your eyes. You know they're they're closer to you than anybody else.
0: So have we got the right approach now? Because I mean we are. I mean it's almost ignored now, isn't it? Generally in the mainstream, it's it's not really in the news a great deal. If we want to get tested, we have to pay for it, uh, which means. But basically people don't test because they don't want to pay for it uh we, uh we we don't see any numbers unless we go hunting for them and even then you know you go and look at the ons numbers they're quite hard to digest the government never mentioned it. i was saying early on the in the podcast before you started talking i went through hansard to see how much it was mentioned in government and it's yes with the exception of ppe contracts and the handling of that yes. it's not been mentioned for weeks uh so nothing about moving forward with, with covid so are we are we a little bit too lapsidasical about it all or no, I
2: no, I think we are getting to the point where, you know, we have to at some point get back to living n- mm. lives normally. And I think we're certainly getting that point, with the exception of people who are partic- as I said, who particularly vulnerable who will still need to pay attention. And uh but and and certainly, you know, I um I generally don't wear masks when I'm going around unless I'm in an environment where people are also wearing masks and where and and whether other people where it's obvious that actually other people might actually prefer you to so, wear a mask, in which case I'm more than happy. But
1: um we, I suppose we're all trying to draw conclusions from the very bizarre two years, two, three years really, that we've had yeah. and the consequences yeah. from it, which were pretty unexpected. I think people were not prepared. Indeed. There's always yeah. the question, I suppose, of what could be round the corner. Now whether this, this this particular virus did or did not originate in a uh, in, in, in a market in China or even possibly a laboratory. And uh, there are lab. great yeah. doubts yeah. about that. But is there a sense that, that what we have to be, do now is be ready for a similar kind of virus to emerge, okay. something that we don't have protection for?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's inevitable eventually that we will get one and uh, such virus. And, you know, most th- these are called emerging infectious diseases. And most of my research and work over the last... 30, 40 years has been certainly over the last 30 years has been around what could be called emerging infectious diseases so diseases that were either previously unknown or diseases that um, were known in the past like cholera went away but are starting to come back and we're seeing cholera re-emerge in many countries in this last year and mm-hmm. and be actually more lethal than it has been in recent years and and typically we see one or two new infections a year.
0: So have we learned anything then? Are we taking precautions that uh, would prevent, you know, this happening again? Because the danger is, of course, if it does happen again, given that, you know, we've come out of it two years down the track or three years down the track and we say, well, it, that was a bit unfortunate. That's a that's a bit of our life that we're always going to remember, but at least we made it through. I wonder if, if it was to happen again in five years, whether we'd all be prepared to lock down and make the same sacrifices that we've made this time around. Uh, I, I suspect we wouldn't.
2: I think... Saying what we would do in five years when we don't know what the problem is, I think is is, um, you know, it it's uh theory, but you don't know what until you get there, what's mm. going to be important. Most of the, in infec- fact, most of the emerging infectious diseases that we've had over, over my entire career of 40 years um, in infectious diseases uh, what didn't require substantial lockdowns, they Rarely stop an infection. Once an infection starts spreading globally, it is very difficult to spread. We we were able to nail SARS in about 2003, and we we eradicated that within a year by mm-hmm. the use of these sorts of lockdowns, so it didn't spread too widely. But um, what? But it was very obvious that um, from a certainly from about April May, uh, uh of 2020 that that lockdowns were not going to prevent ultimately prevent the spread of infection what they what they did do very well was reduce delay most people's infection until after they'd been vaccinated and so therefore reduced disease but they they don't ultimately and you can see this you know as soon as you know china had a very effective lockdown policy that zero COVID policy that stretched it for months and and indeed years with very low incidence but at some point Uh, You've got to get back in society. And if you do that, you get hit just as hard. Now, um, New Zealand was hit very badly when it opened up society, but it opened up society soon after it had completed its um, vaccination campaign and had relatively few deaths, Hmm. whereas um, China delayed that and had many more deaths.
0: Yeah, because of that point about having the having having the injection they, Yeah, having the injection followed by mm. yeah, get, getting getting exposed to it. So what what have been the positive takeouts then? Have you for all your research, is there anything over the last few years that you've 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 added that's added to your research and your understanding about how how these things are are spread, you know, it's what oh, yes. is a positive legacy that it's it's left for yes. itself, I guess yeah. is what I'm
2: asking. I mean I think one of the things from my the sort of the issues that I'm my research is interested in is is sort of transmission of infections and 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 I think one of the things we have learnt from covid is we've got a lot more accurate information on transmission potentials by different routes for covid than we've probably got with any other infectious disease that we deal with um and um and wow. so that I'm sure will have value beyond covid um coming out. I think the other big thing is the development of M- mRNA vaccines, which I think has been um are, are likely to make a huge positive benefit uh, in uh, in uh, coming years for a whole range of diseases, both infectious and talking diseases about even others. using them in, in sort of cancer all kinds of areas where you oh, know Yeah, yeah. Cancer treatments and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's uh, I think we will see a huge uh, Development in this sort of area over coming years, mm. which I think will be uh, of benefit to society.
1: Paul, well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, really good to get a sense of where we are in this, um, which has well, been, as you say, very long good three news. years. Yeah, good, good yeah. news is good too. We like good news. Yeah, <laughs> good to so, talk, Paul. My
2: pleasure
0: now here's an interesting one for next week Um, this is your topic um, and I don't know too much about it so you want to
1: talk about wilding well it's rewilding that's what it's called it's it's, it's this idea that what you do is you take land that that, that has been used for farming or other things and you actually just let nature get it back uh, you, 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 you in a just way rebuild go. what we had before right okay what well, just for farming land or would you do it for cities or there are all kinds of areas where you can do it but part of the idea is, mm. is is for the future we need to have less intensive farming or more intensive farming on less land is another way of putting it and the government seems to be moving in this direction the go- Michael Gove has been talking about ways of, of trying to get us to a position he says of course with the benefits of Brexit we no longer have to follow the agricultural policy of the EU but it's a way of trying to find a way of using our land in the way that's best for us and it isn't necessarily making sure every last square centimeter is dedicated to either farming or property right okay so what happens to it it is literally just becomes common land then does it is that the idea it's kind of common land, but it's also uh, the idea that you actually rebuild what nature had there originally. So you, you, build, right, you, you bring in the, the right animals, the right birds, but you let nature do it. Nature has a good right. way of reconquering this land. Uh, Are we going to bring back the dodo? Well, I don't think the dodo ever walked in your back garden, though maybe uh, there's a chance now. <laughs> um, but its it, it, I, it, I think the idea is it, it looks and feels and works as... It was in originally doing, mm. and and things that we've messed with, I suppose, is the point, right. aren't there in it? And you know, the government recently talking about making sure people are no more than fifteen or twenty minutes from uh, nature, open country. It's all part of that idea. Now, I'm obviously there are lots of farmers, lots of people who say, "Hang on a second, this is ridiculous. We need to use the land we have." So it is an open debate. But we're going to talk about whether it's the way to go in terms of the way Britain is, which has one of the smallest areas of open, wild land in the whole of Europe. I'm
0: sounding immensely uh, sceptical here. The idea that you are 15 minutes from open countryside when you live in Tooting Beck seems a bit unlikely to me. But hey, look, we will explore it all uh, next week on The Y Curve. I'll uh, try and put my cynicism aside and uh, we'll explore the, like we do every week, we'll, we'll explore the, the topic in detail. That's next week on The Y Curve brought to you by Wigmore Associates.
2: The Y Curve.